This morning, with God's help, we will be considering uh, verse 16. Verse 16. And then when we return on uh, to Revelation, we will be back. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. On the last Lord's Day of the month, we will be considering Christ as the bright and bright morning star. Uh, next week, Pastor Isaiah mentioned, we'll be talking about the birth, the incarnation of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, on the last Lord's Day of the month, we will uh, come to the second to the last of our sermons in Revelation, considering the Lord Jesus Christ as the bright and morning star. We have just three more sermons in Revelation after today. Uh, give your attention now to the reading of the word of the Lord, for his word is faithful and true. Verse 16 of chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that believe, eyes that see, hands and feet that obey. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. We pray, Lord, that... You would bless, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Let them be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, saints of God, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our worship through the apocalypse of John. Saints of God. Uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ brings this book of visions to a concluding end, he does so throughout this chapter with three proclamations of the promise of his return. Revelation chapter 22, chapter 22, 7, uh, 22, 12, and 22, 20. Our Lord proclaims that he will come quickly. And the prayer for the saints or of the saints of all time until Christ returns is simply this. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. In our Lord's first proclamation of his promised return, he attached a, a blessing to the one who heeds or obeys the words of the prophecy of this book. That's in verse seven. That is for those who are not only hearers of this word. But doers of this word, the Lord promises a blessing to you. I would argue that the, the promised blessing is multifaceted. It, it's, there's many promises or many blessings that are afforded to you if you not only are hearers, but doers of this word. He will bless you, the one who obeys, with the strength to obey. Now, what are the blessings the Lord gives to us, the ones who, who uh, heed the words of this command? I would say the first blessing is he will give you power to not just be a hearer, but to be a doer. Power to obey. The Lord will bless the one who obeys with the power to persevere. That is to endure, to keep on going. If you are trusting in Christ, Christ will not only give you power to hear, but power to obey. And not just power to obey for one day, but if you trust in Christ, he will give you power to continue to obey, to continue to 
endure in obedience, to persevere in, ob in obedience, come what may. He will also bless the one who perseveres with the grace to, in the end, overcome. To not just be hearers, but doers. To not just be doers, but to be perseverers. Uh, to not just be perseverers, but to be one who, in the end, overcomes in the end. And to the one who, who overcomes, uh, the end result will be the greatest blessing of them all. It will be the blessed vision of God, resulting in perfect beatitude. So for the one who hears and obeys, there is truly great blessings afforded to you. In his second proclamation of his promised return, there is again attached a promised reward for the good deeds, the things that we do obey, followed by a declaration of his person. He says he is the eternal one. Verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ says, <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, Saints of God, a few weeks ago, we consider the meaning of this statement that Christ is the eternal one, that he has no beginning and that he has no end. I think it is important that this declaration or to note that this declaration comes on the heels of or just after the declaration of his promise, listen to this, return and reward. I'm going to say that again, of his promise, return and reward. Now, now, here's why I'm saying that again, because we're familiar with that. We're familiar with Christ saying he's going to return and also familiar with Christ saying he, and he will reward. I think that our familiarity with that sometimes is a detriment to us, though. Because we hear it so much that, that the weight of what Christ is saying doesn't necessarily hit us as it always should. Let me say that again. As it always should. As I meditated on this verse, I, I personally became convicted of my own lack of being amazed by this proclamation. I, I don't know about you, but someone saying that, that who has passed away... That they will return from where they came from, and, and when they do, they're going to bring rewards with them. That's quite an amazing statement to make. It's not something that we say every day, do we? Uh, when someone passes away, we don't say to them, I'll come back, and when I do, I'm going to reward you. No one says that. And, and they are they are either God if they say that, or they're a crazy person. Christ has said he's going to return, and that when he does... He's going to judge the living and the dead. One might ask, on what authority, Jesus, do you make such an assertion? How could you say such a thing? Or who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? And I might say, the Lord might argue, well, it's not like it's not as if I haven't done this before. It's not like I haven't come back before. Right. But the Lord would answer. That's that's. Something I would assume Christ would say. But the Lord actually does answer. He answers in such a way that would cause men like Moses and Joshua to take off their sandals in holy reverence. For the Lord declares in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's how I'm, that's how I'm going to come back and reward. I am the first and the last. That's why I'm going to come back and reward. I am the beginning and the end. That's how I'm going to. That's who I think I am. Right? Who do you think you are? That's who he thinks he is. That's who he knows he is. Right? Saints, I, I understand 
that we sometimes sit and listen to sermons, especially from here, that present to us lofty doctrines. Doctrines on Christology, doctrines on theology proper, doctrine of God. Um, doctrines, anything related to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, may seem so lofty that for us there might we might be tempted to think that, that there's a disconnection, right? Between what? Between this theology, which is high and rich, and I affirm it, and doxology, the way I live, in light of what I've just heard. Does that make sense? This is great. It's rich. I affirm it. But what? how's that going to help me when I leave here? Great doctrine, Pastor. Love it. It's really rich. It's really uh, Mount Everest-type stuff. But, but what's that going to do for me when I go to work and have to deal with coworkers? What's that going to do for me when I'm at home with, with the babies? H- how does that help me here? Well, when we're confronted with the, the loftiness of the mystery of grand doctrines, I mentioned Moses and Aaron. Let us consider the actions of men like or Moses and Joshua. Let us consider the actions of men like Moses and Joshua, like Isaiah and John, who when they were confronted with the eternal divine one who is incomprehensible, their response was to adore him in worship. Okay, so how does that help me tomorrow? Your life is to be lived as a life of worship to God. That means that everything that you do, whether it be your thought, your actions, your attitudes, your dealing with persons, is an offering of worship to God who is incomprehensible, but because he is so great, high, and mighty, it causes you to live in such a way that you say, help me reflect that great light which I can't comprehend in all that I do. A dear sister the other day said to me uh, here in church, I just want to be a light to Christ. I want to be a light for his glory. Well, that should be all of our desires, shouldn't it? We should all, I just want to reflect that which I can't comprehend. It's and, and cause people to say about us, who, what are you, where are you from? There's something about you. And then point them to the one who is incomprehensible. So it's okay when you don't get it. It should cause you to go, I don't get it, but I worship him. I adore it. I don't get it, but it makes me want to go take off my sandals, take off my shoes. This is holy ground. I want to live in light of this because he who is beyond my understanding, watch this, has condescended to us so that we actually might know him. He has not veiled himself from to us. He's unveiled himself to us so that we might know him. Hence the book that we are just about to complete, Revelation. So though we don't comprehend him, he has condescended to us so that we might know him. And in knowing him as he's revealed himself to us, we might adore him and worship him, living our lives in light of that which we adore, God himself. So let us not, as we go through the, that's my encouragement to you throughout the rest of this sermon, don't check out. Check in. It's lofty. Praise the Lord for that. We are to give ourselves in worship to the one who is Alpha and Omega. In fact, the goal of every sermon from myself and Pastor Isaiah is for this, for us to adore him. Yeah, years ago when Pastor Isaiah was teaching through the doctrine of God, 
He would always end. So what do we do in light of this? I don't know if he remembers. I'm sure he does. His always the application for for Pastor Isaiah was always this: worship him. (laughs) What what do we do in light of this? Worship him, adore him. Do we comprehend it? No, we don't. But but worship him. Worship when you don't comprehend it even. The goal of this sermon is not that we understand per se. But it's to adore even when we can't comprehend. Because he's not like you and I. He's the creator. We're the creature. We are not going to know him on a one-to-one level because he's God and we're not. As we come to this next declaration, we are once again confronted with the wonderful reality that we are once again out of our depths. For our Lord, as he brings this book of visions to an end, says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you things for the churches. Now, here's if that's not already amazing, here's what also is amazing. I am the root and descendant of David. Saints of God, what is the meaning of this declaration? There are three titles in this verse 16 alone, two of them that we will, with God's help, consider this morning. And these two seem to be kind of a contradiction. How can the Lord say that he is both the root of David and also the descendant or offspring or branch of David? And then for what reason is he saying this? How do they, going back to what we said earlier, how does this benefit the one who has commanded us to heed the words of this prophecy with God's help? This is the path forward this morning. Two points title for the sermon, the root and branch of David. The root and branch of David. Number one, the root of David. Verse one, I'm going to attach David to it, okay? I am the root of David. That's what he's saying. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who received these visions from the Father, communicated them to the angel, who communicated them to John, and then says to the church, he's the root of David. Among all the titles that we know are proclaimed about Christ, it is very likely this is the the, the least proclaimed title of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree? I think I would. We're familiar with his title as Lion of the tribe of Judah. Good one. Powerful one, right? Well, we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We know those titles. We have heard that he is light of the world, the word, the king, Messiah, the root. You hear that proclaimed very often about our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody... Um, Want that tattoo on them? The root. That title is often absent from the list of titles that we proclaim about our Lord. But here, in the final chapter, in the final verses of God's holy word, he wants his people to know this, to proclaim this, and to hold fast to this eternal truth that he is the root. The root of David. We all know what roots are, don't we? Yeah? Uh, my mom, when I was a kid, whenever I was in trouble, would say, go out and pick up, uh, pull, go pull weeds. And she would get mad at me when I didn't pull them from the roots. And she said, great, now I got to go, and now they're going to come back, all right? Let's assume for a moment that we don't know what roots are. Remember that, don't you? Uh, roots, or a root, is the basic cause or source or origin of something. Slowing down on, on, on purpose. Let me also say, we all know that roots spring forth from seeds after they germinate, all that. But you know what I mean, okay? You know what the Lord means too. In this case, 
Christ is using the analogy of a tree. Now, it's important for those who take every bit of revelation literally. Christ is not literally a root. But is using the analogy of a tree and its roots to communicate something about himself. Christ is saying he's the root. Now, root, it's the source of the plant of the tree or, or tree, typically underground. Uh, typically, I say typically, unseen. But it supports and nourishes every part of what is seen. Everything about the tree, from the trunk, which is the largest part of the tree, its, its branches that are reaching out, its leaves that, that spring forth from these branches, uh, the fruit that the branches produce, the twigs, the crown, all of it receives support and nourishment from what is unseen below, the roots. It's, it is the roots that cause the tree to grow. It is the roots that cause the tree to, to be strong, so that it might stand upright and endure every storm and also support the branches that it's holding. The tree is only as strong as its roots. If the roots are weak, then it will eventually give way to the entire tree, causing it to fall. But if the, the roots are strong, the entire tree will be strong and the entire tree will flourish and produce fruit. The Lord Jesus Christ declares he is the root of David. Amen. Why does our Lord make such a declaration and, and what is the importance of David? Let's deal with the second question first. The David spoken of here, as you probably are, are well aware, is King David. Mm-hmm. Now, rather than spend a portion of our time giving the life or considering the life of David, I will only highlight the covenantal promise of the Lord to David found in Second Samuel chapter seven. There, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has a a desire, a good desire, to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the unique presence of the Lord. However, the Lord does not allow David to build him a house or a temple. For the Lord says he does not dwell in homes made with cedar like man, but he is pleased by David's desire. Therefore, he says to David covenantally, Promises to David covenantally, Second Samuel chapter seven and verse twelve. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house, he says to David, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever about David's descendant. That's what he's saying. Well, who is this descendant? The Lord Jesus Christ is the descendant who was promised to rise from the house of David. In Matthew chapter 1, St. Matthew goes to great lengths through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give the genealogy of Christ. There, the apostle declares that Jesus is the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew could have said that Jesus is the son of many men. Uh, Matthew could have connected the 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 line of Christ and called him the son of many different men. Seth, he could have called him the, the, the uh, son of, of Isaac. 
But he calls him the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? It is to highlight that Christ fulfills covenantal promises made both to Abraham and to David. The covenantal promise to Abraham that from him, from his offspring, all nations will be blessed. And to David, David's covenantal promise that a king shall rise from his house and that he shall rule for all time. The Lord Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and he is the son of David. He is the son that blesses all nations. And he is the son that also is king or lion of Judah. Our Lord Jesus Christ is also the one who has built a house for the name of God. The house of God is also called the temple of God. I wonder, saints, if you would look to your left and to your right and then ask yourselves, I wonder who the temple of God is. Well, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the temple that Christ is building. The temple that Christ is building as king in that temple is the church, his church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is you. It is me. We are that temple that Christ is building. God has fulfilled his covenantal promise to David by establishing the descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, as king for all time without end, whose house whose temple, the church, shall endure forever. Now, our Lord is not just saying he's the descendant of David, though. I'm going to elaborate on the second point. But our Lord is saying that he is the root of David. I, I, I sped through all that on purpose to get to this, because this, the, the, this is the meat. He's not just the branch. He's the very cause for the tree itself. He's the root. Our Lord is saying that he's not just the descendant of David according to the flesh, which he is, but he's saying he's the very cause of David's existence according to his divinity. That is this. Christ doesn't depend upon David for his existence the way I depend upon Richard and the way that Richard depends. And, and without Richard, there would be no Faustino. Without no Faustino, there would be no my sister, no, um, uh, 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 Francisco. If those men did not exist, then I would not exist. I depend upon their existence to be here. But Christ is saying he does not depend upon Jesse or David or Solomon and so on and so on in order to be here because he's the cause of them. They exist because of him. He doesn't exist because of them. There would be no David apart from Christ. It's reminiscent of the question the, the Lord posed to the Pharisees who were attempting to catch our Lord in error. He asked them in Matthew twenty-two forty-two, what do you think about the, the, the Christ? Whose son is he? Remember that? And they said, well, he's the son of David. And the Lord said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until my, I put my, your enemies beneath my feet. The Lord says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? They had no answer. What's the point the Lord is making? Very simply, our Lord is affirming that the Messiah is indeed the descendant of David. But if David, by the inspiration of the Spirit, and Jesus says it on purpose, David was not speaking some kind of offhanded, offhanded word. He's speaking uh, the inspired word of God. And when he does, he says this. And he calls his descendant 
Yahweh. David, through the inspiration of the Spirit, calls the one who comes from him Yahweh. Why would David do such a thing if his descendant was only his descendant? Jesus is arguing he is more than his descendant. He is the Lord God himself. Uh, Put it more plain. David is saying he's more than my son. He's God. Jesus is the author of this book of visions. Jesus says, I sent, this book is from me, and I'm giving it, listen to this, to my angel to give to you. I read, I've been reading Revelation 22 for like the last month, and it's only just taken now for me to go, wait a minute. This book is, Holy Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God is the author of Scripture. God uses the hand of men, but it comes from the Spirit of God. The Lord Jesus Christ claims he's the author of this book, which he calls the very word of God. Well, the very word of God can only come from God. Christ is saying he is God. He is the root of the scriptures, all of them. He's the source of the book. He is the very word incarnate and also penned through revelation. What is more, the angels are also belonging to God, are they not? They are servants of the Lord. There is no man in all of Scripture. Maybe it's the, the maybe it's this that I drank this morning, and I, I haven't been, but I'm going fast. I get it. There is no man in all of Scripture who has claimed that any angel belongs to him, or that he has any authority to tell an angel to go here or there. And yet, here in Revelation 22, our Lord declares both that that angel is his, and that he commands that angel to go here and there. Do you get what he's saying? That he has commanded the angel that he has a, a birth word to the church for, whatever, and he's told the angel, and go give it to them. Christ has the word, and then he gives it to the angel to give to the church. No mere man can do that. No one who is just a descendant of David has the authority to do that, unless he was more than just a descendant of David. Are you with me? I hope that you're with me. Am I just going to? Okay. Only God can make such a claim of ownership of an angel to where Jesus says, I've commanded my angel. We all believe that we have a guardian angel, right? But do you have the the authority to command your angels? Angel, go here and go give this to this person. Angel, go there and, and give this to that person. The answer is no, you don't. But Christ does. Christ is not only the author of this word, he is also the, the one who has authority over all angels. Why? Because he is the source of all angels. Again, he's the root of all angels. There would Amen. be no angels apart from him. Amen. He commands his angels to go here and there because he is the root of angels. He's the cause, again, of angels. There would be no angels apart from the eternal word who made all things be and apart from whom there is no thing that is that has come to be. Christ, the eternal Son of God, one with Father and Spirit, is the uncaused cause of all things. Therefore, you can trust this message, that it is true because it has come from the one who is the root of all things. That's the point. If you're, if you're struggling with, what is, he, what is he saying? Christ is the cause of all things. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the cause of all things. The Lord Jesus says, in John 15, I am the branch, or I am the vine, you are the branches. 
No fruit can come forth apart from Christ. Any fruit that does come forth is because of Christ. Specifically, Christ as a second member of the Holy Trinity. He is God. And as God, he is the root of all all things. What the Son does, the Father does. What the Father does, the Spirit does. They work collectively as one. Dear ones, we could spend the rest of our lifetimes times 100 million and more considering the various ways that God is the root of everything. But especially the spiritual blessings that are ours through faith in Christ Jesus. God, now here's why I'm doing this. I'm saying Christ is the root of all things. Why? Because he's God, second person of the Trinity. Therefore, as God, and, and they work together as one, the persons work together as one, God is the root of grace. God is the root of forgiveness. God is the root of mercy, of love, of goodness, of kindness, of salvation, of abundant life, of joy and peace. We could not fathom the depths of his roots because there is no bottom, right? God is the source of all good things. He is all in all. The source and cause of all things. So this verse as some theologians like to conclude, it's not just Christ saying he's the, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Messiah coming. He's saying so much more than that. He's saying that, but he's saying so much more than that. I hope that what you're doing is adoring. Not, don't check out, Zuda. Don't check out. Stay here. Adore him. He is the root and cause of all things. Christ is declaring that he is God, the author, the author of prophecy. About himself. That he is worthy of our worship and obedience. He he is worthy of our taking off our shoes in reference to him and before him. Because we are in fact standing on holy ground. He is worthy of our taking heed. Not because these are the words of the son of David. But because these are the words of David's creator. And covenant Lord. Let me say it like this. When we are in church and the word of God is being preached, they are not from Antonio per se or Isaiah per se. These words are from the root of you. The cause of you. The cause of why you're here. Therefore, you should take heed to these words. They should not be a moment for us to decide I'm going to check out. They're the very words of God, Scripture says. They're the very reason why you exist. And they are the words that will guide you home. Christ is the root. And if you are united to him, then here's the application. Then you'll be able to stand. Besides worship, which is obvious. As your root He will sustain you as your root. If you are part of of this tree that is rooted in Christ, he will nourish you. He will cause you to stand because the strength of his roots knows no end. He's the cause of the tree. And what he has begun in building this, this tree or temple, he shall complete When he returns, he is promised as God to do so. Which is why we say with fervency, the next verse, come, come, 
Come, Lord Jesus, come now and, and support me with endurance until you do come. Worship the one, saints of God, who is the root and cause of all things. Amen. Worship the one who allows you to stand, who enables you to stand, because he is God. If you're looking for, what's the point of that first point? He's the uncaused cause of all things, you and me, and he causes you to stand if you are in him. He's the root. Secondly, the Lord says, as the descendant of David, I am the root and descendant of David. The Lord Jesus has declared that he is the root or cause of David. And the scriptures testify that according to his divinity, he is the root and cause of all things. A very God, a very God. And as the true human descendant of King David, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his now humanity, the Athanasian Creed confesses that he is man. Watch this now. Born in the womb of the substance of his mother. Perfect God and perfect man, the Creed confesses, with reasonable soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his Godhead and inferior to the Father with respect to his manhood. The Lord Jesus Christ was truly man. Here's the point. He was fashioned in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. He was blessed by Mary, supported by her, just as we were supported by our mothers when we were in their wombs. The Lord Jesus was truly man. He possessed a reasonable soul dwelling within a true body of flesh and blood. I imagine that we could spend a lifetime now considering the soul of Christ and in the blessed glory of heaven and in the new creation upon the beatific vision, we shall receive greater clarity concerning his divinity and his humanity. But for now, man, let's talk about man. Man is a soul and body composite. When God created man from the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed into man of dust a reasonable soul. Stay with me. Man was created upright, holy before God. Man was made without sin. But as we know, man willingly chose to rebel against God. Uh, the, the soul of man became corrupted by sin. Man has fallen from right reason and because of sin, he has distorted and suppressed all truth, committing sins of the soul in the body. Which makes them sins of the flesh as well. The evidences of man's corruption are revealed in words, deeds, values, and, and pursuits of his flesh. What he does in his flesh reveals the corruption of his soul. A man reveals that his soul is polluted by the misdeeds of his flesh. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2 and 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging uh, in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Follow me. Because of man's corrupted soul, he misuses his body. He commits sins in the body that reveal the wickedness of his soul, the sickness of his soul. But Christ, Christ is altogether different. 
not in that he was not a man, but that in his but that his soul was not corrupted. The soul of Christ, as the Apostle John says, was full of grace and full of truth. The soul of Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure, without limit. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty two. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I, I, what I'm alluding to is Christ is sinless, right? First, Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our Lord is the perfect one. He is the divine exemplar. Because there was no corruption in his soul, which was evidenced by his perfect, how do we know? By his perfect perception of every attempt of the evil one to lure him into sin, and by his perfect reasoning to the empty result of what sin produces. Meaning this, Christ shows that he had no sin by living a sinless life. Christ shows that his soul was not corrupted by the perfection of his actions. It shows there was perfection of thought, perfection of desire, perfection of pursuit evidenced by his actions. He lived impeccably, both from within and from without. Both in his soul and in his body, Christ was sinless. As the God-man, our Christ could not sin, and as both God-man did not sin. Could not and did not. There was no sin upon his soul. Therefore, there was no sin to be lived within his flesh. Truly man, though, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, his soul was perfectly satisfied by the will of God. His only meat, the only thing that satisfied him, his only drink, the only thing that satisfied him was to live perfect beatitude before God. According to the flesh, he is the true descendant of David. Indeed, he is the cause of David, but he also wants us to know that he is the one promised to come from David, according to the flesh. According to the flesh, he is the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, that would come and destroy the works of Satan. According to the flesh, he is the promised son of Abraham, through whom the nations of the world would be blessed, Genesis 12. According to the flesh, he is the son of David who would rise and reign on his throne for eternity without end. According to his divinity, he is the root of David. But according to his humanity, he is the son of David. The Messiah. Who assumed our flesh so that we might be healed. He has taken a true human body. So that he might heal all the human bodies who would trust in him. Yours and mine. Liberating our humanity. So that we are no longer enslaved by the dominion of darkness brought about by sin. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your trespasses or transgressions and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive. Together with Him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, over them through him. 
saints of God, Pastor Isaiah just, just got done preaching through this. Mm-hmm. By the perfect offering of love that Christ gave in His true humanity, He made us who were corrupted of soul and therefore dead, He made us alive. Yeah. Dear ones, you are if you are in Christ, you are now alive. I know that sometimes on Sunday mornings we don't feel so alive. If you are in Christ and you've placed your faith in Him alone, you're no longer dead in soul. You are now alive in soul and the deeds lived in the flesh are righteousness, not wickedness. Because you're alive. Wickedness is evidence of death. But dear ones, righteousness is evidence of life and not just any kind of life. Good abundant life now is yours by his life he gives life by his truly becoming man in our stead he gives life to those who were dead john 1 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men he is the way the truth and the life Life is summoned up in Christ or summed up in Christ. He is very life of life. There is no life apart from Christ. To know what life is, is to be found in Christ or united in Christ. Paul says to me, for for me to live is Christ. What is life, Paul? Paul will say it's living for Christ. Who died for, who lived for me and died for me so that I might live. Christ has lived in the flesh so that we might know for the first time what true life is. You know what, want to know what true living is? It's coming and honoring Christ on the Sabbath day. Amen. That's the good life. You know, you want to know what the good life is? It's hearing people that you work with talk about how they're still recovering from a hangover on Friday and Saturday and you saying, I'm sober minded. I don't need that kind of lifestyle in order to satisfy and fulfill me. And they look at you as if you're the dead one. You know what life is? Life is knowing that you will be able to look at the things of this world knowing that they can't satisfy you therefore they can't enslave you and come what may only God in the very end will be able to give you joy that all men have been created for it's knowing where to find true happiness it's knowing where to find true peace that's what true life is travel here and there those are goods remember the, the basket of goods a lot of goods but if the number one good is not God then you don't have life All of this through the life and his offering of love that our debt of sin would be canceled. Dear ones, I can take us back to the old church. Raise your hand if you've got debt. (laughs) Many debts that we wish would vanish into oblivion. Debts that we wish if we could go back, we would never have signed the agreement in the first place. But may I tell you that they are temporary. Those debts, while they come monthly, they won't last for eternity. They won't continue to haunt you 
when you're in heaven and the new creation, they will be wiped away. They are the debts of man. But let me say to you, the one debt that really matters, the one debt that will haunt the person who does not go to the one who can cancel the debt, that debt will haunt them forever if they don't turn to Christ. But if you turn to Christ, the promise from Christ is that he has canceled every single one of your debts. The scriptures say, putting them away, nailing them to the cross. Every single one, past, present, and future, every single one of our sins canceled and put away by Christ. Pastor Isaiah mentioned it this morning. They, they are gone now. He's removed them. He is the God who cancels sin. He's assumed our flesh to cancel the debt of the flesh. It goes away, all paid in full. He loves his own, and he loves us to the very end. By the perfect gift of love, he also has disarmed the power of sin, dear ones. In his humanity, Christ has offered his life But because sin did not have dominion, authority, or power over Christ, then if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. And that means that sin does not have dominion, power, or authority over you either. Do not keep saying, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a human, I'm going to sin. Stop that. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm talking about a power that is in you to turn away from sin. It has no power over you because it did not have power over Christ. It has no authority over you because it did not have authority over Christ. It has no dominion over you because Christ has broken the dominion of sin over your lives. Christ has done this. Christ has, the scriptures say in Colossians, he has has disarmed sin's power. Those of you who who are into self-defense, disarming, taking away its weapon taking away its authority, its threat against you. Christ has come as Bruce Lee and taken the arms of sin away from you. He has disarmed sin's power. We were once slaves. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free. You could say that in any church, huh? You could say that in any church. And it, it should get an amen in any church you go. If the Son sets you free. And uh, not any politician, uh, not your employer, not your husband, nor your wife, not your children. But if the son sets you free, then you are free indeed. If the son sets you free, Christ is the son. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah who has accomplished in his flesh as truly God and truly man for all who have ears to hear salvation. And he says to you. If you have heard this and received it with great joy. And some who have left may have needed to hear this at the very end. Let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take from the water of life without cost. Let them come. It's free. It's free to you. You only need to come to him. And here's the beautiful thing. Mario was just mentioning this. And our confession also mentions it too, Brother Mario. That he requires faith for you to come and then he gives you faith so that you can come. Amen. The faith that he demands so that you can come is the faith that he freely gives. What a what a wonderful 
merciful, good God we serve. This is the message and the invitation from he who is the root of all things, true Messiah and Savior of the world. And what is the sum of all these things? Let me make it simple. Come to him. Come and take freely the gift of life that is offered to the one who has loved you if you come to him with an everlasting love. Come just as you are. And come and let him make you as he is. Come and worship is the invitation. The reward will be beyond what eye has seen and ear has heard. The the reward shall be God. And while we wait for his return, we have a promise that if you are in the root, he will sustain you. He will nourish you. He will cause you to endure and ultimately overcome. He is the root and he is the branch. Trust in him and he will sustain you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray.